This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference.
please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, Episode 62, Operation Cody, Todd Vandiver. And John, you've done some undercover stuff too. This this book that Todd Vandiver is about Operation Cody, it's a total undercover operation and available in written form. So if anybody wants to, to this is probably going to tantalize things. But a very cool yeah. undercover program. We're going to do part one and part two just because it was so much and so in-depth. And Todd shares a lot of undercover. So this is pretty exciting. That you've talked about your undercover operations. We've had Nancy Foley talking about undercover operations. And now we're going full-fledged into an Operation Cody yeah, it's it's the some of the most enjoyable, most stressful, and dangerous work to do in conservation law enforcement. And uh, this is an incredible story because he was so deep for so long, um, kind of quasi like our special operations unit in California mm. that Nancy Foley ran, like we discussed with her, like you just mentioned. So um, this is an exciting one. I don't want to give a lot of it away, but suffice to say that to make the case as effective as they were able to do in this situation, you have to be all in, you know, and you have to be in deep. And when you're in that deep without backup, without support, you got to think on your feet a lot. You got to, you know, create a persona and you got to be consistent in that persona. Not everybody can do it. And this is an incredible Mm. adventurous story of getting to the deep poachers that you just can't get unless you immerse into the undercover, the undercover world. And this is a great, this is a great one. You guys will love it. Absolutely. And speaking of books, I have a book that's out. Just want yeah, to share with everybody. New book out. Yeah. What is it, Wayne? Tell us about it. It's a junior game warden series. A lot of game wardens write books, and it's tr- trying to find that niche. You found a great niche, John, when you wrote your book, because uh, to be honest with you, you you have exposed so many of us to so many different things. And you know, my story starts when I was a kid, so my interaction with a game warden was very special to me. And as that game warden was leaving, I asked my father, you know, who is the cowboy in the woods? And that's resonated through my career and through my life. So I co-wrote a book with uh, a biologist, Lindsay Webb, who's an outdoor naturalist as well. And the first book, A Cowboy in the Woods, it, it highlights Bobby Forrest as he goes through and, and learns about the cowboy in the woods. So it is a kid's <laughs> book. It. It, it, it's a great kids book you guys are on patreon i got it held up here we'll be releasing it probably by the time this podcast is out there it'll be out there available on wardenswatch.com so um, I'm, I'm pretty psyched i'm pretty happy so that's what i, I brought all these partners in and we wrote a book uh it's going to be a series so we already have the other one in progress now but it's a junior game warden series a cowboy in the woods it's going to be super fun wayne congratulations man i'm excited for this yeah. what a great new way to approach the story. We haven't seen that. And uh, uh, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard the backstory. So I'm looking forward to reading it and uh, getting them in the hands of game wardens and so many more people that, you know, we can get a little more kids kind of roped in early into the thin green line with this great book. This is exciting. Congrats. Yep. Thank you. So now this is about a book as well, Operation Cody. So if you guys like to read books, Todd Vandervert has written many books at this point, and you're going to listen to him firsthand about Operation Cody. Thanks for listening to Warden's Watch. Make sure you do that Apple review. Give us a five-star rating because I'll tell you, I think some poachers are out there, John. I think they're getting ones and twos from people that don't like us, which uh, I hope we can get enough people that like us to, to weigh in because, you know, let's face it, our jobs, we didn't make everybody happy all the time. And I'm seeing right. that here and there. People aren't really excited about Warden's Watch or the Thin Green Line, but that's just the nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting, we're getting some haters and that's understandable because we're stopping crime and, Mm. you know, I'll take those haters any day and our, the fans and all you guys that listen and watch Warden's Watch and Thin Green Line, you're part of the solution and part of stopping these wildlife crimes and protecting our wildlife resources. So 
help us counter those haters guys with that five-star rating and thank you so much for your support and we're going to keep grinding for you i am really excited to have todd vandervert on the warden's watch podcast and Todd has had a great history. He's done some incredible things, and you, you guys are just going to, it's going to blow your mind what, what we get into with Todd's interview. Todd was a Washington State game warden for how many years, Todd? 34. 34 years. And it was a colorful career, wasn't it? Uh, you, you were a busy yeah, game was, warden. Yeah. You, I was. That, that, that's awesome. How did it all start, Todd? I mean, you started you, you started in Virginia, right? I mean, that's where you were born in Virginia, and then you moved to no, Washington. I was born, okay, I was born and raised in California. Okay. Um, I, I, uh, we lived in the Bay Area. My dad is a uh, nuclear chemist, or was, and I worked wow. on atomic weapons. And um, we transferred, moved from Virginia or from California to Virginia when I think I was about thirteen. So I. I, you know, my formative years were in in Virginia, Northern Virginia, just south of D.C. And but from birth to about 13, I was in California. Cool. So you got a good uh, East Coast, West Coast uh, going on there. <laughs> yep. The yeah, I haven't touched much of the center of the country, but I've been on both coasts quite a bit. Oh, that, 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 that's great. And how did you end up in Washington? We went. You got your love for the woods in Virginia, right? When you were at that age, that point, you started getting attached yeah, to I, the woods and the outdoors. Yeah, I uh, oh, since high school, certainly, I was. I had a lot of hobbies. I had a lot of activities that I liked, and um, I started flying when I was fifteen. I I got certified to dive when I was twelve. Uh, that was in nineteen sixty-eight. So you can do the math. Mm. Um, and. Uh, and I really was into hunting, fishing, backpacking, and rock climbing. Those were my activities I spent the majority of my time on. And so in the Virginia area, there's, you know, limited rock climbing, but there is some. And there's uh, quite a bit of backpacking opportunity. Not a lot of public hunting areas to hunt. Uh, and so, so I was, as I was getting closer to graduating from high school, obviously I started thinking about what I wanted to do for a career and I decided I wanted to fly for a living. So I, I primarily wanted to, my plan was to go into the Navy, fly for the Navy, get out of the Navy and fly commercially, probably for an airline. Mm-hmm. Um, that all worked great till I took the color vision test to, to see if I could meet the criteria to be a Navy pilot. And I'm colorblind. I'm, I'm red, red, green colorblind, which for a game warden is not the best quality. Because of that, my flying career came to an end. I mean, I could get a private license, but at the time, I my color vision was such that I couldn't even get a commercial rating, couldn't get the medical for a commercial. Uh, so that changed. So I decided I wanted to go into oceanography because I, I'm a scuba diver. I love, I love marine life. So I decided to go into oceanography. I applied to Florida State University and intended to go into oceanography, went down there to take a tour of the campus, and then realized that oceanography was not what I thought it was. It's mostly physics, which is not my favorite subject. <laughs> uh, so what I had what I had thought was ocean oceanography was actually marine biology. And I started talking to people about that. And they said, yeah, we can offer you a degree, but the chances of you getting hired are pretty low. There's a lot more graduates in marine biology than there are jobs. So then I came back and I rethought it. I thought, well, if, I, if I'm not going to go into the oceanography, not going to go into flying, I'll, I'll go into something that's working in the woods. And that's how I ended up deciding to go into forest management. I went to Washington State University. And the reason I picked Washington to go to college was it was the farthest place I could get from Washington, D.C. without going to Alaska or Hawaii. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I didn't like it there. I wanted out of there. So Came out to Pullman, Pullman, Washington, for anybody that's been there, is smack dab in the middle of a bunch of wheat fields, and as far as you can see are wheat fields. And I I, I still remember to this day flying into Pullman Airport to go into a forestry program at a well-known forestry school at WSU, and there wasn't a tree in trees. (laughs) (laughs) That makes you feel really good, confident, huh? (laughs) Yeah, so I... So I graduated from WSU with a degree in forest management, a minor in chemistry, and met my wife there. Uh, we got married shortly after we both graduated. My wife's a teacher. When I graduated, uh, I had a 
<laughs> I had a job working at Taco Time, which, you know, I mean, it had a lot of future, but <laughs> but uh, I decided to go a different. I decided to go a different route. I started applying for jobs everywhere, uh, primarily in forestry, um, but anything that I was qualified for. And and a job came open with a game department working on a habitat area. I applied for it, got it. So the first four years, I think, of my career, I worked on a habitat area. I had a law enforcement commission for three of the four years, but hadn't gone through an academy or something. At, at that time, our department gave out what uh, most agencies would call a reserve commission. They didn't, they didn't say reserve, but they gave you a law enforcement commission as a biologist or somebody working for the agency so you could take law enforcement action. That, that went out the window quite a while ago with liability. While I was working in habitat management as a habitat biologist, I met a, a game warden named Ken Waltering. And Ken was uh, stationed in Walla Walla, Washington. I was at that time stationed on the Snake River. So I started working with Ken. I, I remember the very first day I worked with him, we went down to a popular fishing lake, sat back in the bushes with a spotting scope and a pair of binoculars and watched what people were doing. And from that point on, I was, I was hooked. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. So I tested for wildlife agent, and, which was the title at the time, and I got hired and the rest was history. So. So much observing going on. That's why Warden's Watch is Warden's Watch is because we spend a lot of time watching people. I always love it when you when you check somebody out. It's the first time I've ever been checked by a game warden. It may be the first time you were checked, but I bet it's not the first time you were you you weren't observed. And maybe yeah. that didn't make the contact because, you know, we were observing you to make sure everything goes because there's a lot of time spent doing that. And if the guys you know, looks like he's doing everything correctly. You don't want to give your position away or let the other anglers know whether it's a fishing violation or anybody else. Exactly. So it's uh, a, a lot of observation and boy, and it's a lot of time observing too. But when you see that violation occur, that there's nothing better that you waited for. It's yeah. almost like Christmas time. You know, you wait, you wait when you're a little kid, you wait, you wait. And all of a sudden it shows up and you are just, uh, I got it. I, I'm excited. You know, you got that violator. You know, yeah, it's it, your your statement there is one that I've used a lot when people used to tell me, you know, I've never seen one of you guys before, and I said, you've probably been seen by one of us, though. Yes. So, yeah, so so much so, uh, but I, I love that about our job, and you know, even when you do make contact and you tell people what they've been doing the last hour, I just I like to you know show show them that they've been being watched for a while. But just when Absolutely. you think, just yeah. when you think you're alone. You never do. Yep. And, and in this yeah. day and age, I always used to tell my guys, act like you're always being filmed. You know, I, yep. I think I've told this story on uh, this podcast before, but we were hiding the cruisers at a seasonal house, uh, me and Glenn Lucas, one of my officers. And we stopped there, and it's a nice place, Todd. It's a real nice place. And I start looking around. He's like, you don't like this place, do you? I'm like, no, this is fine. It's just I'm looking for the camera. And as we look, <laughs> we, we find it on the telephone pole going back at the house looking at us. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and, he, and he's like, do you think they just saw me take a pee there? <laughs> and I'm like, it's a good chance, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. And we did make a case, by the way. We set up our robotic decoy and we were able to make a case that day. So that was a good thing. Certainly, uh, I want to talk about you know you and your robotic decoy f uh, first. So, but uh, let's get back okay. to the story where you were. You just you just uh, took the test for Washington, and I hate to go down my rabbit trails, but I do. <laughs> it's uh, my first duty station was Forks, uh, Washington. And anybody knows the state of Washington at all? It's on the west side of the Olympic Peninsula, and I even wrote down the there it is. Um, yeah, we got an average of 120 inches of rain a year. So 10 feet of rain a year. Wow. In Forks. I spent, spent about a year there, then moved to a town called Shelton in Mason County, which is also on the West side of the state. And, uh, at least we got less rain. We got 65 inches or something there. Wow. I stayed Great. there for a good 10 years, I think. Nice. And then I moved to the East side of the state. Uh, then I moved to the East side of the state to Columbia County, uh, a little town called Dayton, about 2000 people. And I spent another eight or so years there. And then I transferred to a Marine position. I'll back up a little bit. Our agency, because we have a large Marine environment, it, we back in the old days, we used to have two separate agencies. We had the Department of Game, which, which later turned into the Department of Wildlife. 
and we had the Department of Fisheries. So two separate agencies, both working natural resource issues. I don't recall the year, but quite a while back, they merged the two agencies. So what they did when they merged them is they kept land officers and they made another program called the Marine Division. And that was primarily working saltwater. And I transferred from Columbia County, Dayton, over to Anacortes in the San Juan Islands, working as a Marine officer over there. I did that for three, four years, I guess. Then I got asked to uh, join SIU, our statewide investigative unit, as a detective. I, uh, I can get into the why I got asked to do that in a while, but I was invited to work a case that they had, that I had some skills that they thought would be beneficial. I worked that case, and at the end, I tested for a permanent position with SIU as a detective, and that's I, I got that. And then for the next um, oh, seven years after that, I worked nothing but undercover 100% of my time. Wow. What a change, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it really it's, uh, I'm sorry. I really like to delve into that side. You know, we've heard from a lot of officers on the Warden's Watch podcast, but we never really got that undercover side yet, which uh, I think you're the perfect person to segue us in from a uniformed officer into that undercover slot. Uh, we did, you know, Nancy Foley was one of our guests from California, and she did some undercover work as well, and maybe you guys worked together at some point. But uh, that's we, we've delved a little into it, but not a lot, which I'm excited about talking about Operation Cody and the book you wrote and everything and that transition that, you know, some of us get an opportunity to, to do and some of us get assigned to do it, you know, from the beginning. Right. Yep. So uh, do you want me to work into that then? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is your podcast, man. So you can do whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so as I said, I was a uniform officer working in the San Juan Islands, which is a beautiful place to work. Um, mm. For those of you that are considering visiting Washington, you've got to hit the San Juan's. A nice, beautiful area. And I got a call one day from one of the detectives that asked me if I would be willing to work. I, I guess a medium duration undercover. And the case was about a group of hound hunters that were believed to be conducting a lot of illegal activities. At the time, we were several years into, uh, we still have prohibition on use of hounds, dogs for uh, pursuit of bobcat and lion and bear. Uh, When I first got hired, that was a very common practice. Everybody had hounds, uh, not everybody had hounds, but all the hound hunters would hunt lion, bobcat, and, and bear. And all of a sudden, they, by a vote of the people, they banned that and they banned baiting of bear. So these houndmen were stuck with very expensive hounds and all the gear with it, with nothing that they could legally hunt other than raccoon. And that wasn't real popular with a lot of people. So some of the houndmen sold their dogs that just wasn't worth keeping them. Some of them kept them and hunted out of state. Uh, and some of them kept them and hunted illegally in Washington. And some of them kept them and just hunted raccoon. But this particular group that uh, they wanted me to work was made up of four primary people, um, suspects. And we had an informant. And for those people that have never worked with an informant, most informants come to law enforcement as a result of (laughs) having been arrested or facing arrest themselves. They don't come forward because they're nice people or they're good people or they want to volunteer. They come forward to save their own butts, to to keep out of jail. So a lot of informants are untrustworthy. They'll lie to you. They will do the opposite of what you tell them to do. Uh, And you got to keep in mind that most of them are criminals. Uh, On this particular case, they had an informant come forward who had been looking for a hound to buy. He was just getting into hound hunting. They've been looking for a hound to buy and contacted this group of men down in uh, Southwest Washington. And they invited him to come down and look at the dogs. He said, yep, I think I'll buy this one. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in it. And, but how do I know it hunts? I mean, that's a good mm-hmm. question to ask somebody when you're buying a very expensive hunting dog. And they said, well, let me, let me prove it to you. So the, the main guy took out a, a bunch of videos and, and still photos and showed him all the videos of his dogs hunting bear and lion and he opened the freezer and showed him hides from mountain lion and bobcat that they had killed so that's how he demonstrated how well his dog hunts is by showing a total stranger all the things they've poached in the last couple of years <laughs> um, 
So, so that informant was friends with a, a game warden in his local area. And when he got home, he called that game warden and said, hey, I, I don't know if there's anything here that you could do anything about, but this is what I ran into today. That game warden then called SIU, the statewide investigative unit, and said, you know, I don't, I don't know how I can get into these guys, but, but you probably can. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they, I was really happy that they did that because, you know, obviously you, you know that from what you just heard of the story, there's a pretty good likelihood they could have obtained a search warrant for that individual's house, gone in, take it, right. taken his illegal highs, seized his videos and all that, but that would have been the end of it. Right. So this, this game warden realized there was great potential there. He called the SIU, and I at the time was one of the few people that had much experience in hunting lion and bear with, with uh, dogs. And so they called me up and said, would you be interested in the case? And I said, what's the case? And they told me, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to. So I worked that particular case for seven months. It was my, I had done some really light undercover before. And what I mean by that is, you know, just one day kind of thing. You go into a taxidermist and bring him something and see if he'll mount it when they send unlicensed taxidermist. I, I hadn't done any long-term or serious undercover at that point. So that was my first one. And obviously I had hair at that time that looked exactly like this. I mean, real short hair, no mustache, no beard, no nothing. So I, I look like a cop, but that's not such a big deal. A lot of bad guys look like cops. That's um, right. Or former Marines so, or former, former yeah. you know, military. <laughs> so, the, so the main character on this was a registered nurse. There was a, oh, a, a multitude of other people involved that, that all had professional jobs, except for one. And I worked with these guys for seven months and observed and at times video recorded them hunting bear illegally, hunting lion illegally, hunting bobcat illegally. They had developed a device that I was really impressed with that would snap a lock off a gate in seconds. It, it was amazing. Uh, they, don't, they didn't try and pull on the lock or push on the lock. They, they found a way to twist it laterally so it just snap it off. They called that their, their, their universal key. So we'd go up, driving up to timber company gates. They'd get out with that, pop the lock off, go through the gate, close it back up, and we had the whole place to ourselves. Huh. Worked that for, like I said, seven months, finally came to a, an end, and we arrested the guys, and, and that was it. We got you know outstanding case. Uh, it's, a, it's a very long story that I won't, I won't go into, but... It, it got a lot of notoriety because the main person, the guy that's a registered nurse, uh, one day one of his dogs got into a porcupine, came back, running back with a mouthful of quills in, on his tongue and his nose, all around his eyes. And this guy that was the registered nurse, the, the head of this little group, and they, they called themselves the kill em all boys. <laughs> and uh, the head of this little group, it was his dog, and he was so furious that, his, that he couldn't call his dog off the porcupine. Um, the dog had a shock collar on its neck, but he took another shock collar, wrapped it around his hindquarters and put the, the prods of the shock collar on the dog's testicles. Uh. He then took both controls and turned them up to maximum energy and held the buttons down and shocked him simultaneously on the neck and on the testicles. And while he was doing that, he was jumping up and down on it, on the dog's neck and head and kicking him and bludgeoned the dog to death, essentially. Um, not much I could do about it at that time because I was far outnumbered and I was also the only one that didn't have a firearm. So he ended up, the dog ended up dying. He, we charged him with felony animal cruelty. That was what got him the most prison time. Yeah. Uh, that, that was, you know, that was far more egregious to the public than what he had done to all the bobcat, lion, bear, all that kind of stuff. So, so he got a significant period of uh, jail, prison lost his nursing license. I got to testify at that hearing. That was a first for me to testify yeah. at, a, at a medical licensing hearing. Yeah. Um, so it, we had a really good outcome on the case. Uh, everything went well. Uh, no, nobody hurt at any point. It, it, it was very successful. So after that, I, I applied for a permanent position and with SIU as a detective and I got hired in the permanent position and then immediately just kept on doing undercover work. So I did that smaller undercovers, uh, guides, unlicensed guides, unlicensed taxidermists, that kind of thing. 
uh, for several years until Operation Cody came along, which I don't know if you want me to jump into that now or not. That sounds good to me. Okay. Well, every year in the Western states and provinces, there's a, a meeting, a conference of fish and wildlife investigators that get together once a year. At those conferences, we exchange information, uh, tips, you know, how to do something. Uh, it, it was as much training as anything, but it was also a lot of networking, getting to know the, the undercover guys or the investigators from other jurisdictions, uh, which is really nice if you're going to, you know, your bad guy is going to Montana. It's really nice to know somebody in Montana that can pick it up when the guy's over there. So at one of those conferences, a gentleman gave a presentation on a storefront case that he had done. And I, and I don't recall the duration of it, but I know it was, it was long-term, at least a year. And a storefront operation is one where the undercover person or people open a business. And on the surface, it looks totally legal. It's legit, you get license, all that kind of stuff. But the purpose of the business is to document unlawful activity, uh, primarily illegal trafficking of fish or wildlife. And so this individual got up and did a presentation to the group about his storefront operation. And he, he had a, a business. He was closer to the East Coast. He had a business in which he was buying and selling fish. It didn't take long till he had uh, recreational sport fishermen coming in, trying to sell their catch to him. And, you know, then bigger fish and bigger fish, no pun intended, till he, he finally made a whole bunch of just outstanding cases. And at the end of that, I, I was super impressed. I mean, what we had been doing in the past for undercover was acting on information that either the uniform officers received or our headquarters office received in Olympia, someone to call and say, this business or this guy is doing this or that. And when it was commercial, when it was trafficking, uh, they would normally call the statewide investigative unit to, to be the ones that investigated. We would work cases where somebody call in and say, Hey, I was out bear hunting. Uh, I stopped by a little store to get, you know, a soda and, and some snacks. And the woman behind the counter asked me what I've been doing and said, I'm bear hunting. And they asked me what you do with a gallbladder. I mean, those things came up a lot. Mm -hmm. So just a small, you know, a, a small unlawful transaction that somebody asks about, and then they would call us. One of us would go in and, and uh, see if they were interested in buying gallbladder from us, for example. Did several of those for, uh, did a lot of those for several years. And then uh, went to that conference, as I said, learned about the storefront operation. And that got me going. I, I kept thinking that that would be the solution to getting a whole bunch of illegal wildlife traffickers rather than one or two at a time. Right. You know, each time an undercover works a suspect, that's one less person that they can be seen by in, in their undercover capacity. So the more exposure an undercover officer gets, the, the more hazardous it gets for, for him or her because, uh, you know, the, the chances of being recognized go up every time you make a case like that. So I thought, you know, this is, this is an opportunity to get a whole bunch of people all at once rather than just picking them off one at, one at a time. And the other advantage of a storefront operation is – the bad guys come to you, not the other way around. You know, we don't go out and, and try and befriend somebody necessarily that uh, we have information on. They come to us. So I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And, and our agency, when it had merged with fisheries, I, I came from the game department side, from the wildlife side. Mm -hmm. And when our agency merged with fisheries, a lot of cases, long-term cases, had been done on shellfish. Shellfish is a big, giant very valuable industry in our state and a lot of work had been done on shellfish but no real long-term work had been done on wildlife cases trafficking cases uh, i did the long-term one on the hound hunters but they weren't trafficking in wildlife so i thought about the wildlife part of it and i said you know i, I think we could make a business a storefront operation that specializes in wildlife parks now every jurisdiction in North America has different laws on what you can and can't sell. Correct. Uh, yeah. and, and, and it's confusing as hell to everybody I know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in each state that a person is operating in, it's not that hard to figure out the regulations in one state. It's just that when you're dealing with multiple states, it gets, it gets kind of difficult. But Washington basically boiled down to you can't sell the 
the meat off any wildlife, you know, the edible portions of any big, big game animal. You can't sell elk meat, you can't sell deer meat, you know, et cetera. You can't sell bear claws, you can't sell bear teeth, you can't sell bear gallbladder, you can't sell any part of a mountain goat, any part of a bighorn sheep. So, so you know, we have a whole bunch of laws that specifically address what animals you can and can't traffic. And Washington, for example, allows you to traffic in antlers all you want. Some states won't allow that. So I, I pitched the, the idea to my chain of command and it met with a lot of resistance uh, because of a couple of things. One, because it was perceived as being pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, secondly, and, and I say perceived because I think the budget I had requested was 4,000 bucks a month. Um, and I, and I may be wrong on that, but it, it wasn't, super expensive as, as far as operations like that go, it was pretty cheap, but I knew it would raise some eyebrows. So that was part of it. The other part of it that they really objected to is that I had left fish and shellfish off. I had said, you know, deal in wildlife. And I think it was perceived by some of the people that had come from the fishery side that I left the fishery stuff off because I had a bias against fisheries cases and in favor of wildlife cases. When our agencies merged, if anybody listening to this has gone through a merger with another large agency, uh, some people adapted to the merger quite well. I mean, almost instantly. And some people didn't care for it too much at all. And, they, and those people would stick to what they had done before. So a fisheries officer would stick to working fisheries cases primarily. Wildlife officers stick to wildlife cases primarily. But most of the people blended pretty well. Anyway, there was, there was some strong resistance from the administration on opening up a case that was uh, exclusively wildlife at the time. So we went back and forth over that. Finally, I just decided to skip a rung or two of the ladder and called the chief directly and asked for a private meeting with the chief. He gave me the meeting and I pitched the operation to him and he blessed it for up to two years. I said, go for it. So went back to my supervisor, who was a captain, and discussed it with him. Uh, he discussed it with a deputy chief who had been told that we're doing this, not asked. The only thing that they came back on was we want you to, de- to deal in uh, caviar, sturgeon caviar, sturgeon row. Mm-hmm. And that market on the receiving end, on the buying end, is mostly Eastern Europeans, mostly Russians. And, and so at the time, I thought, well, this, yeah, no problem. You're asking me to put on something that I really don't want to work at this point, but there's zero chance that we're going to get into it. I mean, I, I just thought it was inconceivable that anybody would do business with, uh, you know, white male from the United States, not Russian. But anyway, so I agreed to that. That was the only fish item that we dealt in. So what I did is I built a website. We named our biz- business Best of the Wild, and I made business cards and brochures and a website and all that. Nice. Uh, while we were talking about the, the case and how we would work it, I had, I had proposed that I would work it solo. I would work the operation by myself. That was shut down for safety reasons. And the only reason I, I offered to do it solo was because I knew there was already a lot of resistance to it. Using somebody else on that case, I thought would give me even more resistance. So I, I said, I'll do it by myself. And they said, no. So we ended up asking a officer that I had worked with extensively as a uniform officer, and I had worked quite a bit with her on undercover work. We had, most of those undercover buys and sales that I talked about earlier were done with the same officer as my partner. And her name is Jennifer Marstad, and she was a uniform fish and wildlife officer at the time. And so uh, she was asked if she would be willing to uh, be a part of this, and she agreed. And so that was set. We were we were then Tom and Tina Davis, and we had a, a business called uh, Best of the Wild. And our website that we built, our brochure and stuff, if you looked on it, everything that was on there was legal to sell and buy in the state of Washington. Uh, we didn't advertise anything that was illegal whatsoever. But we did put on things that we knew would pique the interest of poachers. For example, we put on artificial eagle feathers. As you know, a, a real <laughs> eagle feather is, is a crime to traffic in. An artificial eagle feather, which is primarily a, a turkey feather painted to look like an eagle feather, 
that's legal. You can sell all, all those you want. We also put on deer and elk meat, venison and elk meat on our, on our website because at the time, you, you, I believe it's still the case, it was lawful to sell deer and elk meat if it was from a uh, lawfully licensed game farm from another jurisdiction. Couldn't be from Washington because we don't allow game farming, a uh, big game in Washington. Some of the states that allow elk farms, for example, if, if a person bought meat that was individually packaged from a licensed game farm from another jurisdiction, and they had the documentation to show it, that's legal in Washington. So we put that on our website. You know, we got, we'll sell you elk meat, we'll sell you this. And, and we even put on there that we got it from lawful game farms, et cetera. I knew that from just my experience at that point, I mean, I, at that point, I'd been an officer, been commissioned about 30 years by that time, 31 years, I guess. And so that's a lot of experience to know that, you know, if, if a business does lawful stuff that's really close to the unlawful stuff, people are just going to jump over the line. They're going to ask you. And, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the first case that we got on Operation Cody, I turned the website on. And a couple of days later, I got a call from somebody that said, do you buy deer? And I go, well, you know, it's, it's illegal to buy deer. And he said, well, I didn't ask you if it's legal or not, do you buy them? It, it, it was that simple. This, that particular guy was a soldier in the U.S. Army stationed at Fort Lewis, and he was a habitual poacher and decided he had been selling deer to other people and saw our website and said, see if we wanted to buy deer. So I bought a deer from him one night at the end of the runway at SeaTac. He became a regular uh, seller to us. It was funny. It was like, like any business with one little difference, <laughs> and that is that you know, I, I say in, in the book, I wrote a book on it, by the way, titled Operation Cody. Well, your first case was yeah. pretty good. I mean, two days, you turn it on, and you got you got a pretty substantial poacher within two days to turn it on your website. Yeah. You know, we when we started the business, I mean, there's a statistic that I put in the book about how many businesses fail in the first two years. And uh, <laughs> it's a really high percentage. Everybody knows that. You yeah. Know? And, and, and I got a little chuckle out of that because we intended to fail within the first two years. We didn't, we didn't set about trying to make a profit by this uh, operation. I mean, as a matter of fact, I don't think judges really look at it too well that the state is running a business they're profiting on um, to, you know, to, and, and arresting people at the same time. So, so that was certainly not our goal. Um, I knew that if the operation was successful, that we would bring money in just because we would be selling stuff that we we acquired as an agency, turn around and sell it to somebody like bear gall bladder, for example. Mm. Uh, it costs us nothing. So we turn around and sell it to a bad guy and he pays a hundred, 200 bucks, whatever he sells it, buys it for. And um, we've got that money. And then at the end of the case, once the case is adjudicated, that money gets transferred to the state of Washington. Uh, the other part that kind of helped balance the, the money going out on this operation was the fact that Washington has a forfeiture for uh, seizure for forfeiture law that any tool conveyance weapon that is used in the unlawful taking or possession of wildlife is subject to forfeiture. Uh, so officers will seize a vehicle, keep it in a boneyard and give the person a notice of uh, intent to forfeit. The difference between seizure and forfeiture is seizure is you take it, Forfeiture is you keep it, basically. Mm. It, it belongs to the state. You know, so every vehicle that you forfeit, the state makes money off that, or they get to use it for undercover operations or, you know, their choice. So I, I knew in the long run, if the operation was successful, we, we wouldn't make a profit, but we also wouldn't lose $4,000 a month. We'd, we'd come out okay. Um, mm. And, you know, I was, I was really concerned that, at, at first we got that case right off the bat and then we got into a real dead period. You know, I mean, just a couple of weeks of nothing. And I knew that we were being watched carefully. You know, I mean, just if it wasn't going well, we were going to get shut down. So I just kept my fingers crossed and hoped that it would start to pan out. And it did. It's like anybody that's ever run a business knows that it takes a long time for the word to get out and people to talk about you and send emails about, you know, your, your website, that kind of stuff. And it did. But once it got rolling, it was extremely successful. I'll, I'll touch on some of the major cases that came out of that. We, we had a, one individual that lived in 
Walla Walla, Washington, that ran a restaurant. And he had, he had previously been identified uh, by one of our officers who got information from a guy that was delivering uh, soda to this restaurant, canisters of soda. And the, the guy that delivered for Pepsi or whoever he delivered for uh, went in the, into the cooler one time and noticed there were several deer carcasses in the cooler. Well, he, he took a while to notify an officer. So, you know, it was, it was stale by the time the officer got stale, meaning it wouldn't do you much good on a search warrant because too much time had passed. So that information got to me. We stopped, stopped by the restaurant one time and, and just handed him a business card and that was it. Uh, just handed a business card and said, if you're interested in any fish or shellfish or wildlife, anything like that, that's, you know, legal, give us a call. I got a call from, it, it was one of the funniest undercovers I have ever had. I got a call from this man. He's, I believe, from Hong Kong. He's Chinese that runs a Chinese restaurant. And he called me and asked me a million questions about what we sell and what we don't sell and all that. And, and <laughs> then he specifically asked about bear. When he asked about bear, uh, I, I obviously knew where he was going with it. I mean, anybody that asks you what, what, how many bear you kill a year or something like that, they want the parts mm -hmm. and primarily the gallbladder. So he asked if, if we sell bear and I said, yeah, we get bear once in a while. And he, he said, um, what do you sell? I said, well, what do you mean? What are you looking for? And he said, well, what, what parts do you sell? And I'm a little sarcastic at times. And uh, I ended up start listing every body part I could think of on a bear, except for the gallbladder. <laughs> I mean, I, I, <laughs> I talked about it, you know, it's, it's teeth, it's claws, it's uh, oh, vertebrae and it's spine, you know, it's, it's <laughs> bones and you know, everything. It, it's uh heart, it's liver. I, I named everything except for the gallbladder, just, just to see. When I was done with that, he sat quietly and then, then said the words that I expected here. You know, what do you do with the gallbladder? And I said, we keep them. And he said, how many do you, how many do you have? And I said, more than you, more than you can afford. His, his answer was, I doubt that I can afford all you have. I'll, I'll buy all you have. So he ended up buying one gallbladder from me, one, one as a test. And he, he told me that he was going to have it tested to, to make sure it was gallbladder. One of the problems we ran into in bare gallbladder uh, cases is that a pig's gallbladder looks identical to a bear gallbladder. Mm. And obviously it's not illegal to sell a pig gallbladder. Um, it, it's just like a, you look back at a case, uh, a drug case, for example, where somebody sells uh, you know, they crush up a, a Tums pill, uh, a Tums tablet, and then sell it as uh, methamphetamine or something. You know, they misrepresent what it is and try and sell it as a drug. Well, that's still illegal because you're representing, representing the sale of, yeah. The, the pig gallbladder thing had come up on previous cases. And obviously, the only way for us to tell for sure is we either remove it from the bear ourselves or we have it DNA tested. So this guy, this individual said that he wanted to uh, have the bear gallbladder tested before he committed to buying any more. I was uh, at the house I, on, on that particular day. I was at, spending the night at one of our federal agents, you know, a good friend of mine who's a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agent. I was spending the night, night at his house with him and his wife just crashing because it was a long drive home when I got a call back from this individual that owned the restaurant and he said the bear gallbladder had tested positive. They were happy with it. His buyers in Hong Kong were happy with it. And he wanted to, you know, order all we, all we could get him. The, the way we got gallbladder is, is probably unique to Washington, maybe a couple other States, but Washington has a law that says that uh, the state will have to reimburse uh, farmers, landowners, for the loss of any agricultural crop that's caused by big game. If turkeys come in and eat your entire crop, tough luck. If it's a deer or an elk, the state will pay you back for the, for the losses to your crops. Well, that includes timber companies. And so large timber companies suffer a lot of damage to their trees. Uh, bears peel the trees to get to the Cambrian layer, um, which has a mineral that they seek. And, um, and, and these timber companies, the way that most of them addressed it in those days was 
take, have the department issue permits to hound hunters to hunt outside of what would normally be lawful. Because as I said, they, by this time, hound hunting had been banned for bear, lion, bobcat. So we, the state would issue a, a special permit to hound hunters to go in and remove the bears that were peeling trees. Um, so we got a lot of bear killed that way. And therefore we had a, an endless source of bear gallbladder because we requ required people to turn them in. The one thing I was concerned about is that some of the hunters were, might be turning in pig gallbladder and retaining the gallbladder from the bear themselves. I mean, that's, mm. if you can't tell visually, it, it brings up that possibility. So I had a lot of them tested, a great deal of them. I mean, we had, I had access to probably a hundred of them at one time. We, ha we had quite a few of them uh, sampled and tested and they all came back positive to bear. Uh, and then every gallbladder we sold, we did the same thing. We took a DNA sample so that we could, Proof. you know, definitively say in court, even though it's illegal to buy a representative, you know, if we sold them a pig gall and told them it's a bear gall, we still have and juries and maybe even judges don't care for that as much as they do. It's the real thing. Mm -hmm. um, so we, so we had a, a fairly endless supply of bear gallbladder. And so we just simply took a lot of pictures of the gallbladder, took a representative sample, labeled it. And then I would mark, I'd put them in Ziploc bags and I would, uh, in a unique way, mark each Ziploc bag in a way that people couldn't tell that I marked it, but I could tell by the marks which bear gallbladder it was. For example, if I did three dots and a dash on it, that's, you know, bear gall number 13. And then I'd look at my chart and that would tell me where it came from, what sample went in and you know, all that. Mm -hmm. So we dealt with that individual quite a bit. He bought a lot of deer meat, elk meat, bear meat for his restaurant. And then at one point he, he asked us if we could get him a mountain lion for food. He wanted to, you know, cut it up and serve it. And we said, yeah, we, we can try. We can see if we can come up with one. Well, the bear gallbladder were easy to kill, but we weren't getting a lot of, you know, mountain lion turned in. Right. So uh, I, I put out the word through the administration to the regions that if anybody came up with a mountain lion that was, uh, you know, didn't need to go in the evidence locker, that we would appreciate it. So I got a call from one of our officers that said, yep, I have a mountain lion. Um, it's, it's a really large one. I think it's 160 pounds, 155 pounds. It's a pretty good size cat. You can have it if you want. But he said, bad news is when he took it from the guys, they hadn't gutted it and it had been a couple of days and it was smelling pretty ripe. So I called up um, the restaurant owner and said, we have a mountain lion. That's the good news. The bad news is it's, it's fairly rotten. Uh, it stinks. And by the time I got it, it did. And he said, I don't care. That's fine. So uh, myself and, and <laughs> Officer Marstad uh, went over to the restaurant and carried a whole mountain lion in, plopped it on their stainless steel counter and got paid. And away we went. He paid he was willing to pay uh, significantly more than I thought he would on that, on that lion, especially considering its condition. Um, so we drove away and, and I was just sitting there going, I, I don't understand this. If he's, if he's uh, surplanting the, the use of say pork, because, you know, mountain lions are a whiter meat. Mm -hmm. I said, if he's surplanting pork with mountain lion, why would he pay more for the mountain lion than he would for pork? Which he did. He, you know, we figured out the, the rate per pound of meat, you know, estimated it and said, he's, he's paying like three times what he would have for pork meat. And so it didn't make any sense to me that he was doing that until my partner, uh, Jennifer Marstead, said, it's probably for his Asian customers, not for the general public. And that was particularly sought after by some of his special uh, customers. And that, that made a lot more sense. We never did find out what what he did with it what his intention was that was one of our most significant people on the case he was buying gallbladder from us smuggling them to hong kong he put them in uh, shipments of toys uh, he dried them so that they would look like a a date a dried date and he'd buy a box of dried dates throw the dates away put bear gallbladder in the box and ship it that way and, and we knew that because he told us so he was sending quite a few back to Hong Kong and having communications with people in Hong Kong. His, his brother ran a very large um, 
indoor marijuana growing supply business. You know, it had all the grow lights and fertilizer. I mean, it's just an enormous warehouse size operation that it didn't sell any marijuana. It just sold, well, not that we know it. Uh, it just sold equipment to uh, grow, to manufacture, harvest and dry and stuff. Marijuana. The, the restaurant owner told us his brother also wanted to buy a bear. So we drove up to this, mar- uh, you know, indoor growing warehouse with a, a bear chopped up and a couple different coolers frozen and drove it up to the back of the business and out came some guys, guys that I probably wouldn't want to confront in the middle of the night. I mean, they did not real friendly looking guys. They came out, they took the meat from us, paid us. And at that point, the same guy that owned the restaurant called me right after I finished the transaction with his brother and asked me what I thought of the guy's business. And I said, man, it, it, it makes me want to get back into growing. And that was the only thing I said. And he goes, oh, you, you grow weed? And I said, ah, I used to, but I, I don't right now. And he said, okay, well, we're going to set you up um, if you want. And I said, what do you mean? He <laughs> said, well, we, we can set you up with equipment. We can set you up with the starter plants um, if you run a grow house. And we went over, my partner and I went over to Walla Walla, sat down with him to discuss us running a grow house or two for him. Um, He was more than happy to do so with us. He said that he would provide all the equipment and the starter plants. And I think we were supposed to make roughly $20,000 to $25,000 a month. Mm. So then the next thing he did on, on this meeting was give us a long lecture on money laundering. Uh, you know, he said, when, when this all gets going and you're making 25 grand per house, and he said, we could have as many grow houses as we want. He said, just don't go out and buy a Hummer and a bunch of jewelry and a, you know, big fancy house when, you know, when you don't have that kind of money, supposedly. So he said, you know, he gave us a big talk on how to, how to uh, save money, put it in the bank without being caught, how to launder it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we had that on the line. We, that was coming up. Uh, he promised us the plants, um, bring them in in a, in a truck, a covered truck. And uh, so we had that plan for the future on that case. We had, uh, trying to think of other significant individuals on that. We had a, an individual that's very wealthy guy. Uh, he ran a business that made wildlife furniture. He made uh, sofas, chairs, tables, stuff like that with antlers, with horns. He had elephant tusks. He had, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I'm not an African wildlife guy. I don't, I don't know African wildlife very well at all, but this guy was into wildlife from everywhere. He had, he had tons of it. So we went on an undercover to his place to look at, at, at his furniture and so forth that he had for sale. And we portrayed ourselves at that point as having a, uh, my, my wife, uh, my partner, we were husband and wife, as I said, my, my partner, we portrayed her to him as being kind of like an interior decorator for the rich and famous. And, and uh, she told him that we had a very, very wealthy client who, you know, was going for the, the Western wildlife kind of theme at his house. And, and he wanted some really attractive, you know, wildlife kind of natural looking furniture and, and accessories for his house. So we went into this guy's place to look at what he had for sale. And he had a lot of stuff that, you know, was really interesting from a wildlife enforcement aspect, but his prices were beyond our budget. Mm. I mean, it it was kind of funny. He's one of those guys that never answered anything with thousand or hundreds. He would just say, oh, that's three. And we go, "Uh, it's not $3. So he must be saying 300. So, you know, we'd say 300 and he'd go, no, no, 3,000, you know, for this and 12,000 for that, 22,000 for that, way beyond our budget. We couldn't do it. Right. So, so we essentially, you know, said, well, we don't have that kind of budget right now for our client. Do you have anything under, you know, this dollar <laughs> range? And, and so he sold us, uh, the first thing we got was a, a big horn sheep sconce, a wall sconce for a light that was made out of a uh, horn of a big horn sheep. And as I said, bighorn sheep are one thing you can't traffic any part of in Washington. So that was our first per, you know, our first transaction with them. At that point, we realized that portraying ourselves as buyers from him wouldn't be as successful as selling to them. 
And so we got into a conversation about the availability of bighorn sheep horns. And I told him that I had a friend that had multiple bighorn sheep that he had, you know, found and that he had the horns from him and was willing to sell them. And, you know, we got the lecture from him on how illegal it was and to be careful and da, 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 but then he bought them from us. So, so <laughs> he, <laughs> he ended up doing a lot of business with us also. We, in addition to the Chinese restaurant that I told you about, we also did business with, I think, three other restaurants. The one thing about that that really made me nervous is when we were selling to restaurants, we we're selling primarily deer and elk meat. And what made me nervous about that is the deer and the elk meat we were selling, we had obtained from other people who we bought it from. And we didn't know how they cared for it. We didn't know what they did with it. You know, we just bought an elk, for example, from somebody. We'd give it the smell test and, you know, the best we could to make sure it was safe and all that. But, but I was concerned about liability on the deal. So we asked our, uh, I asked my chain of command to, to check on it and see, you know, if, if, for example, the attorney general's office was okay with us selling wildlife meat to businesses that most likely were turning around and selling it to their customers in the restaurant. And we were told that as long as we had information leading us to believe that uh, real poachers were selling them game meat that were okay. You know, that as long as we take every due care and caution we can to make sure it's safe, that we were okay. So we sold to several other restaurants that had solicited from us. So the case, the case when it, when the, well, not the case, the operation, Cody, when it was authorized by the chief for two years, he said, it would be a maximum of two years with oversight from our deputy chief, who was not a real friend of mine. And that, you know, we'd be audited, of course, you know, by the financial people and that uh, we would we would have oversight from the deputy chief who had the authority to shut us down at any time he wanted. We, we started uh, getting a lot of uh, friction from, a, from the deputy chief. Started out with very little manpower, just myself and, and Jennifer Marstead, my partner. And I had asked for people to take care of evidence. And I had asked for somebody to be the case officer to, or detective to uh, keep track of it. But, but that was not to be. And uh, as, as the operation went farther and farther and we got more and more people, uh, more and more suspects, we got more and more resistance. The bear gallbladder buyer that I told you about from the onset that one of our early guys that ran the restaurant and bought bear galls to ship to Hong Kong, that particular deputy chief said that, uh, you know, he needed to shut us down because uh, we had had too many Asian individuals as suspects. And, and he was concerned that it was racial profiling. One of our captains had said, Oh my God, you know, we're, we're uh, getting too many people of Asian descent. And so um, that we were uh, entrapping people. That's, that was his argument. One of the captains brought up the racial profile. But the deputy chief said that we had been entrapping people. For, for those people on here that aren't familiar with entrapment, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I, I boil it down to it's a, it's a case of the idea originated in law enforcement's mind. They came up with the idea to, to commit this crime. And they also made it too tempting for an ordinary person to pass up or, or, or an ordinary person was incapable of passing up. I'll give you a good example. If, if I uh, throw a, a bag of cocaine under the truck, under the front seat of your truck and then turn you in for it and, it, and it's learned that I threw the cocaine under the seat of your truck, obviously that's entrapment. You know, it's, I, I, got, I got lots of legal problems. You don't. But entrapment is not entrapment if you just make an offer. If, you, if I put an ad out that says, I want to buy cocaine and I put it on Craigslist, the, my asking for it is illegal, but my, my purchasing it from people does not make it entrapment because I put an ad out. And, and we didn't advertise, again, we didn't advertise for anything illegal whatsoever. As a matter of fact, everybody we dealt with, we warned them that what they were doing was illegal and you, know, you couldn't tell anybody and so forth. Right. So, so the, entrap- the entrapment argument got shot down right away because it was on the guy, it was regarding the individual that ran the restaurant that I told you about. And he's the one that called me and said, do you have bear? He's the one that called and said, do you have gallbladder from bear? So it, it was about as far from entrapment as we could get. Right. But we, just providing, we were starting to get... 
the opportunity for the, the opportunity. You're not Absolutely. throwing in. And a lot of our entrapment case law came from the drugs. I mean, the drug enforcement, we're doing this long before game wardens building cases based on buying and selling of what people either perceive to be drugs that, that actually weren't drugs or actual yep. drugs. So a lot of that you know, type of case law came in there. We are just providing opportunity for the bad guy to do what bad guys do. Same yep. way, we hear that a lot with decoys too. You know, you're entrapping people by putting a decoy. No, we're providing an opportunity. The good guys that do things right don't get charged. So, yep. <laughs> you know, if there's a game warden in the truck with him and he knows it's a decoy and he's telling him, shoot that, shoot that. Now, now we've stepped over that line because he knows he's encouraging that, he's influencing that. But no, you guys were just uh, providing the opportunity and informing them. You know, hey, you just to know, you, this is illegal, but... You know, it's it's available for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I won't I won't go into every single case that was under Operation Cody, other than to just say it was it was extremely successful. We had and we uh, want people to read the was, book, don't we, Todd? We want people to pick oh, up. Oh, sure. The book yeah, absolutely. It, so, yeah, we're we're gonna plug that book at the end for sure. But yeah, and on the next podcast, we will conclude Operation Cody, Todd Vandevert, Game Warden, undercover. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.